BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So I'm wondering how you're dealing with the coronavirus. What's up with you and your family and how is it playing out for you? I know a member of our family, extended member of our family, is basically soliciting folks to get together for a vacation next spring, you know, in about five, six months. And I'm, boy, would I love to do that. But I'm looking at some of these surveys. This is a study, pretty remarkable. This research team looked at the populations of Spain, England, Italy, and Geneva, Switzerland. Three countries and one city that participated in this study. This is done by a, a group of infectious disease specialists at the University of Cambridge in the UK. And they came to some rather startling conclusions. This is from a piece in Nature, the science magazine, by Smrit Malapati which says for every 1,000 people infected with the coronavirus who are under the age of 50, almost none will die. And this is the point, of course, that you know, Trump and all his buddies keep making. Oh, you know, if you're under 50, no, no worries. For people in their 50s and early 60s, however, about five will die, more men than women. The risk then climbs steeply as the years accrue. For every 1,000 people in their mid-70s or older who get infected, around 116 will die. That's amazing. I think that's around 11.6% if you're over 70. The studies reveal that age is by far the strongest predictor of an infected person's risk of dying. This is referred to as the infection fatality ratio, IFR. They note, quote, COVID-19 is not just hazardous for elderly people. It is extremely dangerous for people in their mid-50s, 60s, and 70s. COVID-19 is more than 50 times more likely to be fatal for a 60-year-old than driving a car. Gender is also a strong risk factor with men twice as likely to die from the coronavirus than women. We're just waiting for therapeutic or a vaccine or something like that. But until then, I'm personally not willing to take those kind of chances being over 60. But apparently some people are. In fact, Dr. Scott Atlas, I don't know how old he is, but uh, this is the guy who is on Fox News all the time. He's not an infectious disease doctor. He's a radiologist. Um, (laughs) But, you know, of course, you you get your MD, you study infectious disease at some point. But But that's not his specialty. He's not an epidemiologist either. He's been accused of promoting a herd immunity strategy. He's saying, I never advocated that strategy, said this uh, a couple of days ago. 
But the simple reality is, this uh, from Jacqueline Howard at CNN, an administration official told CNN all the policies that Atlas has pushed for are in the vein of a herd immunity strategy, which basically means let everybody get sick. And, you know, yeah, the, the old or the unwell will die out, but, you know, everybody else will. I mean, this is how the human race has typically dealt with pandemics. The Black Plague killing a third of Europe, the Spanish flu in 1918. Although we did have mask laws in the United States during the 1918 flu. In fact, there was a famous trial here in Portland of a guy who refused to wear a mask. Back to this piece by CNN, Atlas, this new doctor that Trump has brought in, and he's basically replaced Fauci and Burks. I mean, they're still on the committee, but he's just not listening to them and not trotting them out in front of the TVs. Atlas has rejected the need for widespread community testing, arguing that the administration should focus almost exclusively on protecting and testing elderly populations while pushing for the rest of the economy to return to normal. His strategy basically saying, you know, well, yeah, okay, with true herd immunity strategy, you just let everybody get sick, a bunch of people die off, those who survive have herd immunity. He's tweaked it a little bit. He's saying, well, you know, let's isolate people over 70 and test them and protect them and let everybody else get sick. Absolutely extraordinary. New Zealand had beat the virus. They had gone 102 days without a single new case of the virus. They had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 people who were infected. They were all being quarantined. Everything was good. And then suddenly this virus popped up in this one family of this guy who was involved with this shipping company. And now they've got 12 cases. 12 cases. In Australia, in Victoria, Australia, they also got a new little pop-up, a couple hundred cases in Australia. In Australia, they all seem to be tied to one single hotel where they were quarantining people who had flown into the country, who had tested negative but still had to be quarantined for 14 days. Because Just because you test negative doesn't mean you don't have the virus. It just means you've only had it for a couple days and it hasn't, you know, the viral load hasn't reached the point where you can flip a test. So kind of restarting the whole thing. I mean, it's just, so Australia is locking down again and they're starting to very carefully pay attention to these people from, from, you know, who are coming in from outside the country because basically they were infecting hotel staff and hotel staff were infecting their families and boom, it was starting to get into the community. Australia has locked it down. In New Zealand, they think it has a connection to the shipping company. And in fact, in both Japan and South Korea, they have identified coronavirus on frozen meats and fish that have come into that country from the United States. Now, they don't know if it's an active virus that can actually infect people or if it's the leftover fragments of a virus that died on the way. Died isn't quite the right word for a virus, but you get what I mean. You know, they're still trying to figure that out, but they're pretty flipped out about it. And, you know, obviously anything coming out of the United States is going to probably be laced with virus right now, especially anything coming out of a meat packing plant in the United States. So what Trump says about New Zealand with their 12 cases, he said this in his rally, he said, what you see going on in New Zealand, he said, they beat it. It was like front page news. They beat it. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Donald Trump literally thinks everybody in the world does whatever they do because of him. This is how severely mentally ill and narcissistic this man is. He actually thought that Jacinda Adhern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, was trying to defeat the coronavirus to stick it to him. 
This is what he said. They beat it. They beat it. It was like front page news. They beat it because they wanted to show me something. He said, but I was right, right? You can't stop this. You got to let it infect people like I am here in America. Those weren't his exact words. He said, there's a big surge in New Zealand. It's terrible. We don't want that. Right. 12 cases related to one family where dad works in a shipping company that's bringing meat in from the United States. Really? It's crazy. There is one guy whose opinions I pay very, very careful attention to when it comes to everything from nutrition to food safety to public health issues. That's Dr. Michael Gregory. He runs a website called nutritionfacts.org. I've played fragments of clips from his very short two, three, four minute YouTube pieces many, many times over the years. I have learned so much from Dr. Gregory and I'm constantly promoting his work. He's got a new book out in paperback. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic. The Twitter handle is nutrition underscore facts. And as I said, the website is nutritionfacts.org. And sure enough, Dr. Michael Greger is here with us. If we can make our phones work, Dr. Greger, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about the relationship between animal-borne diseases generally and COVID-19 and this pandemic that we're experiencing right now. Over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. You say, wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. The AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease was because we turned cows and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. You know, but our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. So most of the diseases that we're struggling with, and I know, you know, some of the older diseases, smallpox, tuberculosis, syphilis, gonorrhea, they they all go back to animals as well. I mean, we've had this long-standing relationship with these, is it zoonotic or zoonotic diseases for uh, centuries, for millennia. First of all, why do they spread so efficiently in human populations? And secondly, what human behavior is it that keeps producing these plagues? Oh, well, the spread is thanks to the fact that people are becoming infectious, contagious before they start showing symptoms, which so makes it very difficult to tamp down. But in terms of what we're doing, when we overcrowd thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds and these factory farms to lie, you know, beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, I mean, it's just a breeding ground for disease. I mean, the sheer number of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs. Lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, put all these factors together. What you really have is kind of a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. The bottom line is that it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. If Americans, by and large, stopped eating animal products and thus reduced the demand for, substantially reduced the demand for factory farms and industrial meat operations and, and bushmeat for that matter. If we were to do that, A, would that help reduce the probability of future zoonotic animal-caused disease epidemics like the one we're experiencing right now, which came out of bats? Would it reduce that? And number two, Would Americans or humans survive eating a diet that does not include animal products at all? 
In this new age of emerging diseases, we now have billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within, you know, billions more spins at pandemic roulette. So the smaller we can make those numbers, the lower the risk may be. And then can we eat plant-based? In fact, not only could we, it would reduce our risk not only of chronic diseases like heart disease, but reduce the uh, underlying risk factors for the current pandemics, severity and death, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. These are the predisposing factors that are increasing people's risk right now, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. So if people renounce all animal products, including cheese, eggs, milk, as well as flesh foods, you're saying that they get healthier always? Of course, it depends on what you replace it with, right? Some of the worst foods right. on the planet are technically plant-based. Soda is plant-based. Potato chips are plant-based. But so I encourage people to move towards whole food plant-based diets, centering their diets around the healthiest foods out there. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, which are beans, split peas, cheese, lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices. Basically, real food that grows out of the ground from fields, not factories. Those are our healthiest choices. Now, I don't want to suggest that becoming a vegan is going to save you from COVID or coronavirus. And I know you're not suggesting that either. We're, we're, we're having this conversation in the context of how do we stop the next pandemic, the next time this kind of thing goes nuts. Is there any evidence that diet is associated with risk factors for getting severely ill with COVID-19? Look, you don't even have to be obese. Just having a BMI of 28 or more, which is about 175 pounds of the average American height, puts you at nearly six times the odds of suffering a severe COVID-19 course. And in the United States, the average BMI exceeds 29. So even being skinnier than the average American, you can have so much excess body fat still put you at extremely high risk for suffering a severe course. So, you know, putting in place healthier habits right now protecting in the future against diseases and right now against the infectious disease threat. Tell me about mTOR and how some of these animal products trigger actions in the body that might not be useful or healthy for us long term. Oh, well, yeah. So mTOR is kind of the engine of aging enzyme. In fact, that's the subject of my next book, How Not to Age, which will be out December 22, 2022. There are certain amino acids that are concentrated in animal protein, which accelerate the aging process, can increase our risk of disease associated with old age, such as cancer and heart disease. And we can reduce our intake of those specific amino acids by shifting over to plant protein, which has as an additional bonus, not the bad baggage associated with protein from animal sources, such as the saturated fat and the cholesterol and the hormones, etc. Since food is a packaged deal, we can get our nutrients from healthier sources, but only from the uh, produce aisle. But plant foods in general, eating at the bottom of the food chain, which is our exposure to industrial pollutants, has a number of side benefits beyond just the chronic diseases that are laying waste to the American public. What's your best advice for Americans to just more broadly stay healthy in these difficult times? We should really take this opportunity to get sufficient sleep, keep active, reduce stress, stay connected out here remotely to friends and family, eating a healthy diet. If you ever want to start a meditation practice or start an exercise program, really clean out the cupboards, let's all take this time to set the healthier habits, which will not only protect us and our families in the future against chronic disease, now against infections, but also prevent future infections as well. 
Yeah, view it as an opportunity. Dr. Michael Greger, MD, physician, author, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. His new book, How to Survive a Pandemic, nutritionfacts.org, nutrition underscore facts. The book is available wherever you find fine books. Dr. Greger, thanks so much for being with us today. Keep up the great work. Thanks, you too. Samuel in Rose City, Michigan. Hey, Samuel, what's up? Well, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I'm kind of worried about coronavirus. I heard the Chinese found coronavirus in packaged meat from the United States. They did. Nobody's talking about it. There were two cases, and one was China and the other was either South Korea or Taiwan. It was another Southeast Asian country. And one involved both frozen meats. One was frozen fish and the other was frozen chicken. In both cases, they tested positive for coronavirus on the surface of of the food product. Now, that seems kind of alarming, but the coronavirus tests are not looking for an intact, viable, viruses aren't alive to begin with, but, you know, infectious, shall we say, kind of living virus. They're not looking for that. What they're looking for are proteins, components of the virus, proteins that are unique to that virus, principally the ones that make up the spikes on the outside of the virus that let it infect cells. You know, if somebody had the virus and they handled this fish and this meat and then it got frozen and the viruses were destroyed by time or by the freezing process or whatever it may be, there would still be those particles of protein on that chicken or fish that could be detected by the test. So nobody knows yet if this was actually viable virus or not. That's a big unknown, number one. And number two, you know, we haven't seen this replicated over and over again. And number three, there have been no reliable cases, at least reported in the United States, of anybody getting coronavirus from their food. So this is something to be concerned about, but it's not something to be flipped out about, at least yet. Josh in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to thank you for having Dr. Michael Greger from NutritionFacts.org on to talk about the link between factory farms and pandemic viruses. I just wanted to add to your conversation with Dr. Greger, in addition to making changes towards a plant-based diet for our health and reducing the risk of pandemic virus spread, there's also legislation called the Farm System Reform Act that was introduced by Ro Khanna in the House and Cory Booker in the Senate that would phase out existing factory farms and stop new CAFOs from being built. And so I encourage everyone to contact their representatives to also support this legislation. Yeah, amen. And did you know Cory Booker lives on a 100% pure plant-based diet? He's a vegan? So does Tulsi Gabbard. There's a few vegans now. And so does Bill Clinton. Two of them ran for president. Pretty cool how it's really expanding. And actually, the first gentleman here in Colorado, Governor Polis' husband, is also a vegan. It is spreading. Thank you, Josh. In fact, you know, Louise and I have, we've actually kind of, because we were speaking for myself, I was slowly gaining weight as, you know, just not exercising, I guess, as much as, as normal. So now Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're eating a diet that is entirely fruit and green leafy vegetables. And then on the weekends, we'll add grains and starchy foods and and uh and i've i think i've lost about an inch i've I've gained probably two and i'm trying to get rid of the second one but uh it really works it's it's our variation on the five two diet now it's a four three diet (laughs) but anyway alexander zajic has a brilliant piece up over at the new republic it's titled how to break a big pharma monopoly on covid19 vaccine his website is zajic.com z-a-i-t-c-h 
ik.com. He's also the author of The Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Donald Trump's America. Before we get to the vaccine, let's start with remdesivir. Give me the story of this drug that seems to have a, a small but measurable effect on very, very sick people with coronavirus. Where did it come from? How was it developed? Who paid for that? What are they charging for it? Who's making money on it? Right. Well, it's a long story that involves a lot of different layers of investment, beginning with basic research funded by the National Institutes of Health into the field. Yeah, it's you and me and everyone listening. Exactly. Billions of dollars went into the general area that remdesivir represents, which is an antiviral targeting certain RNA proteins. And that research allowed two researchers with Gilead Sciences, which is a major pharmaceutical company based in California, to, quote unquote, invent this molecule, which they were originally hoping would have activity against Ebola. And it was shelved and that proved not to be the case. It was later rediscovered during a scan of Gilead's molecular library, they call it, by the Centers for Disease Control, who thought that it could have activity against things like coronaviruses, which it turns out, some asterisks, that it appears to have activity against people with severe COVID. But the trials that led to this discovery and its eventual fast-track authorization by the FDA was completely paid for almost by government and military agencies. Okay, so, so let me just get this straight, Alexander. Yeah. So we paid for the raw research that led to this category of drugs. We paid for the specific research that led to this particular drug. We paid for the safety and efficacy studies on this drug. So the manufacturer now, how did they get exclusive right to manufacture this? And what does it cost to make? And what are they going to charge us for it? They have a markup right now. There's different tiers that they're charging. But basically, they marked up 50 times the cost of manufacture. In a pandemic. Wow. Unconscionable. And, and the reason this is allowed to happen is a loophole in the law. We have legalized monopoly in the form of patents, which we allow to take right. place even in the field of medicine, which there's a good argument that you should not have monopoly control of medicines when you can drive up the price, especially in a public health emergency like we have right now. But there's also a mechanism within the law for the government to override those legal monopolies. And that was what I was getting at with my article, which is basically a contribution to a chorus of voices that are coming out now saying, let's use that power, that override power, which is written very explicitly into the law for crises like this. So rather than doing it the stupid way, like we did with remdesivir, that costs us a fortune and makes, I mean, 50 times, that's that's mind boggling. You walk into a store and buy anything, you know, you buy a, a you know, a $20 shovel and, and maybe it costs $3 to manufacture. You know, that's not a 50 time markup, right? I mean, you know, from manufacture yeah. to wholesale, from wholesale to retail. I mean, that's mind boggling. 50 friggin times. Have, have been compared to printing presses for money. That's basically what they are. Yeah. Because it's an inelastic yeah, market. Yeah, absolutely. People are going to pay hospitals. So how do we do this with the vaccine? We've got uh, two major vaccine candidates that look like they're probably going to be the ones that are going to be rolled out just in time for the election. And then there's, a, I guess, a couple dozen others that are in development just in the United States. How much are we paying for all this? And who's going to own these? And what do we do about this? Well, through BARDA, the U.S. government has contributed, I think, upwards of $10 billion at this point for the various What's vaccine BARDA? research programs. That's the uh, Pentagon agency that funds biomedical research. 
they've put billions into these vaccine candidates. The markup won't be quite as high for vaccines, but we don't know because there's no transparency with these companies, even though they're using government funds. And there's also no price controls. The government is not asking them to make promises beyond vague assurances that the price will be reasonable. But they've quoted numbers, I think $37 a shot, so considerable markups. And there's a very good argument that they should be (laughs) zero markups with a vaccine, again, during a public health emergency like this. During World War II, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, when he put Harry Truman in charge of ferreting out waste and fraud military contracting, gave a public speech in which he said, there will be not one new millionaire made as a result of this war. Yeah. And Trump is going, hey, we've got a war against a virus. We can make lots of millionaires. I mean, how yeah. unusual is the technique, the strategy that they are pursuing right now compared to the way it's normally done? Or is this, do we normally, do we just get routinely ripped off by pretty much every drug that comes to market? Yeah, the pharmaceutical industry is acting the way it always acts right now. It's just an opportunity for us to sort of really pay attention to it because it's under the light of this pandemic. And there's so much attention being paid to the quote unquote race for a vaccine and other treatments and diagnostics around COVID-19. But this is what they do. It's what we allow them to do. It's what they're rewarded for doing. It's what we've refused to try and stop with our democratic system that they have a lock on. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry spends more in Washington than any other industry, and it has paid off for them. We have tools in U.S. law that can put a check on their power and increase access and equity to medicines for the taxpayers who are paying to develop them. We just don't use them. We're talking with Alexander Zajcik, the author of The Gilded Rage, Wild Ride Through Donald Trump's America. And most recently, a great piece over at The New Republic, How to Break a Big Pharma Monopoly on a COVID-19 Vaccine. Alexander, what can we do about this? If I was to call my elected officials, what would I say? Or is that even the appropriate pressure point? You know, what's it going to take for the American people to stop getting ripped off by this insanely profitable industry that spends more to bribe politicians than any other industry in America? It's a big question, but on this particular issue, it's an executive decision. And generally speaking, this is going to require a new executive approach to the industry because all of the main um, tools for addressing this come from uh, Health and Human Services and then beyond that, the White House. We need people at HHS, which controls the NIH system, to enforce public interest mechanisms for public control over the drugs, which result from government-funded research, which is almost all the drugs. There's research coming out lately showing exactly how dependent the industry is on $43 billion a year distributed by NIH. Without that money, they don't exist. The drugs don't exist. It's our money. But HHS is in charge of this. Uh, That's Alex Azar. He used to be the CEO of Lilly, Eli Lilly. And when he was the CEO, he doubled the price of insulin, didn't he? Yeah, I don't think we can expect much under this current administration. However, it's never too early to start building pressure and awareness around this issue for future administrations. And I think there's already a lot of anger in this country. Drug prices are routinely at the top of people's lists. There's a lot of political will here that can be mobilized and tapped if we can just get some leadership on this. Are there any champions for these causes in Congress? Lyle Doggett out of Texas, Liz Warren, Jan uh, Sachowski 
is good. There are bills out there that don't have a lot of traction or supporters. Yes, sorry. There are leaders and the ideas are there. Everyone knows what the problem is and the solutions are lying right in front of us. Amazing. Alexander Zajic, check out his article, How to Break a Big Pharma Monopoly on COVID-19 Vaccine over at the New Republic. Thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Likewise. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. So the uh, first COVID-19 deaths linked to the Sturgis motorcycle rally was reported in Minnesota. The Washington Post 
writing about this. A Minnesota biker who attended the Sturgis motorcycle rally has died of COVID-19, the first fatality of the virus to be traced to the 10-day event. His case is among at least 260 cases in 11 states tied directly to that Sturgis motorcycle rally, according to a survey of health departments by the Washington Post. Epidemiologists believe that figure is a significant undercount because the rally goers are, you know, not enthusiastic about being tested and won't go along with contact tracing. Therefore, the true scope of the infection stemming from this might never be known. It's just pretty remarkable stuff. Teresa in Lincoln, Nebraska. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm just really livid. <laughs> I don't know. I, did you see Rachel Maddow's piece? Where oh, Maine you're talking about the, uh, the, the Maine pastor who has, yeah. uh, apparently yeah. he's the silent spreader or somebody on his staff because he, he went and these, did this wedding and now there's like a hundred people. You know, I agree. This is people's lives that they're playing with. Well, he's already killed one person. Yeah. I, I just—I was so livid after that. It's about blew up. I mean, what is going on? What is wrong with people? You know, and and he's supposed to be this great religious leader, and yet he don't care about other people's lives. Seriously. But here's you know, if you want to know where to focus your anger, Teresa, this guy is just some guy trying to make a living, right? He's trying to make a living in the religion business. And if you want to make a good living in the religion business, you got to get a, a large following. You got to get a lot of people to show up every week and put money in the collection plate. And when they don't show up, they don't put money in the collection plate, but the rent is still due and you're in trouble. So, you know, he's trying to make a living in the religion business. And the president of the United States told him and all of us, that it's not that big a deal. It's like the flu. President Trump's spokespeople, Rush Limbaugh, oh, it's just the common cold. Don't you know coronaviruses are just common cold viruses? Trump gets 1,500 people together for the last day of the Republican convention, none of them wearing masks, or, or maybe three or four of them, but you know, the vast majority not. And he doesn't have a mask. And it's like, this guy is simply trusting Trump and the Republican Party. And, you know, I don't think that this pastor actually did his homework, because I think if he did, he'd be scared to death. The guy's in his 50s. Well, exactly. Um, I mean, and they informed him on Saturday, and then Sunday he goes and has his church service. I mean, really? You know? Well, it's because he didn't believe it. Trump said it's a hoax. He is trusting his president. This is the power of the bully pulpit. Do they not believe that there's 187,000 people dead already? No, three days ago, Donald Trump told him it's only 9,000 people, Teresa. I don't care. 9,000 people is three times what the the dang, you know, they're all concerned about 9-11. Oh, my God, you know. Well, that's three times as many. Come on. Yeah, except 9-11 was healthy people. And I mean, they've got their stories. They've got a whole epistemology around this. They've got a whole a whole worldview around this, a whole ideology that, you know, if you don't know the facts, seems consistent and seems whole. And I'll bet you anything that that pastor did not say to himself, I'm going to go out and kill some people. I'll bet you anything he said to himself, you know, Donald Trump tells me this isn't a big deal. He's got a doctor in the White House right now. This new Scott guy, whatever his last name, Scott Abbott or Adams or something. He's a real doctor. He's a medical school graduate. And he stood there with Donald Trump. Come on. 
Right, I know. And then the CDC comes out and says, oh, you don't have to get tested if you've just been exposed. It's not a big deal. And, we're, you know, basically we're going to go for herd immunity. It is criminal. I agree, Teresa, but I'm not yet ready to blame the pastor. I'd like to know the rest of the story. But I think that Trump and his enablers have blood on their hands in a big way here. Kathy in Kalispell, Montana. Hey, Kathy, what's up? Pleasure to talk with you, Tom. I just wanted to call and mention that there are basically, my understanding is there are three separate programs in Social Security. And I'm sure you're familiar with them. I would just like to ask you to clarify which ones and at which time. Sure. The retirement fund, which is not actually called that, but you know what I'm talking about. I think it's called old age insurance. That fund will end in 2023. We don't have the exact month. The Social Security Disability Fund, which pays for people you know, like my friend Michael Hutchison, who did break his neck and was paralyzed, that fund will be exhausted in June of next year. And the Widows and Orphans Fund, I don't know. I don't know if that's tied into the Disability Fund or if it's a standalone fund. That would be a question for Alex Lawson or Nancy Altman. Okay, we also have SSI, which is for people who have never been able to pay much into the system, but, say, developmentally disabled. Well, that's part of the disability fund, is it not? I thought SSI was... I see them as separate funds completely. Oh, it may be. Kathy, your question exceeds my knowledge. I'm sorry. You know, this would be a great topic to get Alex Lawson back on the program. It's been a long time since Alex's been on, and he can talk about the consequences of this. And he'll he'll speak from a from a position of really serious knowledge. So so, uh, you know, Sean will be working on that. Kathy, thanks for the call and thanks for asking the question. I'm sorry I don't have a clean answer for you, but we'll get to it. Morris, Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? CDC, the center for disease control. In my opinion, I believe they've been co-opted. They issued a statement, of course, I got this from American television. They issued an announcement that asymptomatic COVID-19 people don't have to be tested with respect to the spreading of the COVID-19 virus. Now, you and I are not epidemiologists, but we know better than that, Tom. So I'm wondering, and uh, let me know if you are in agreement. I think they've been co-opted when they issue statements like that. What do you think? Well, CNN is now reporting that they were co-opted, that the Trump administration said to the, the CDC, essentially, their reporting is not as explicit as what I'm about to say. But I'm agreeing with you, Morris. I think that what they said to the CDC was, you know, Donald Trump says if we have fewer tests, we'll have fewer cases, or at least we'll know about fewer cases. And if we have fewer cases, we'll look better and people will be happy and they'll vote for him. And so let's have fewer cases. Let's have fewer tests. And so they changed the rules so that if you've been exposed to somebody with COVID-19, you no longer qualify for a test. But I'm concerned that by changing these guidelines, the CDC is going to make it much, much harder for people who have been exposed and should get a test to get that test paid for by their insurance companies or by their states, you know, which I think is the goal of this. Make sense to you? Yes, it does. And you know what saddens my heart? What saddens my heart, the Center for Disease Control was the last thing we had in this country that people had faith in other than Michelle Obama. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm with you, Morris. Thank you very much for the call. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. You were talking about how patients with COVID that got treated within three days with plasma showed some benefit from it. How many people do you know of that get a response or a test response within three days? 
I mean, exactly. from what I'm hearing, it's 7 to 21 days, sometimes 30 days before they ever get a response back. So they're supposed to self-quarantine until they find out. Well, it's pointless. Right. Only yeah, the rich and get they, those and tests. And they don't die. Yeah, yeah and only the rich right. get those tests. So, you know, you got your private jet and you got your private testing kits and you'll know right away and you'll go to the hospital. Well, there's this whole phenomenon right now, Sandra. There was a story about this that I shared with people last week. I think it was in the Daily Mail about wealthy people around the United States. It's particularly hot right now, apparently, with the Silicon Valley crowd, the billionaires, the multi-multi-millionaires, that they've got these instant tests. They're readily available if you're willing to pay for them. Some of them are even charging their guests 500 bucks a pop for the test. And if you want to come to their party, you've got to be instant tested before you walk in the door. Yeah, <laughs> that's and hospitals can't get these tests. Doctors' offices yeah, can't doctors get these can't tests, get or they could, yeah. but they don't have five hundred bucks a pop to pay for them, or you know maybe yeah. they're not even available. But uh, Trump and his rich buddies and and everybody at the White House has these tests. It's yeah. uh, at the very least, there's something very very wrong here. Sandra, I've got to move along, but thank you. Your point was very well made. Hussein in Detroit. Hey, Hussein, what's up? A uh, high cost of healthcare in the United States. Instead of business, the uh, hospital administrators and healthcare uh, health insurance companies tackling the problem by increasing the number of doctors, by opening uh, more residency spots mm-hmm. for people to be able to practice. So what they're doing now is they're trying to increase the scope of practice for mid levels, aka or nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So right now in California, there's a bill that sits on Gavin Newsom's desk where if he signs it, nurse practitioner, physician assistants can practice independently, a.k.a. that means they can open up their own offices, their own practices. And right, they can do that here in Oregon. Yeah, they could do it. So this is, I think this is a problem because they're trying to cut healthcare costs by hiring these people make them practice independently because they won't get paid as much. But then the other side is you have people, this is people's lives at stake. You're going to people who are not trained as well as doctors who are not, uh, who's not been. Well, yes and no. Probably 95% of the stuff that, that gets dealt with in, you know, just average clinics and people showing up for health care and whatnot is the I, kind I, of I stuff that, that a nurse practitioner now, or a PA is appropriate to deal but with. Now and they can refer people to doctors. But now what they're doing in California is just expanding the scope of practice where they can read their own imaging. The solution to this, Hussein, is not, first of all, I'm not opposed to expanding the scope of practice. But the solution is to stop the AMA's cap on the number of doctors who can graduate from medical schools. That's the problem we have here. They tried to drive up scarcity to to keep wages high. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. There's a lot of people graduating with PA or nurse practitioner NP degrees who easily could have been doctors had the slots been available. Sue in Sonora, California. Hey, Sue, what's up? Why is Trump pushing so hard to vote by machine and not by mail? I believe that it came out of the early surveys, and this goes all the way back to May and June, that found that people who consume Fox News and right-wing hate radio generally don't think that this virus is a risk to them or a danger to them, whereas people whose principal news sources are CNN or MSNBC or the big networks tend to believe that the coronavirus is deadly and is a danger to them. And as a result of that, 
people who consume their news through Fox News and right-wing hate radio are more likely to think that voting in person is not a big deal. That's why only 20% of Trump voters report that they're going to vote by mail. Whereas people who consume their news from you know, mainstream sources realize how dangerous this virus is, and about half of them are going to vote by mail. And so when Trump saw those statistics, or when his campaign and his strategists saw those statistics, they said, okay, you know, the Biden vote is going to be a, a by-mail vote, and if we're going to claim that the election was stolen, we have to figure out a way of claiming that that vote is illegitimate, or, you know, delegitimizing that vote. That's what's going on, Dennis. It's very simple. Wally in uh, Cleveland. Hey, Wally, what's up? I've been thinking about something I have heard no mention of, and that is if we're cases about fifty to 60,000 per day, and if that's going to happen, which I'm sure it will, four weeks before election, you do the math, multiply it, you could have two million people that are, for one, scared to death. We don't know how each individual is going to handle that. Are they going to vote? Or are they not going to vote due to it? And that's an awful lot, big high percentage, I think, that we're going to lose of voters due to that. Yes, increasingly what's happening, these are anecdotal reports, of course, but you know, we're hearing from hospitals and things that a lot of the cases that are coming in now are coming in as a consequence of people not wearing masks. So it may yeah. be that the people who are dying off and being intubated are the Trump pumpers. I don't know. Wally, thanks for the call. There's going to be a lot of analysis done for a lot of years about the consequences of this particular pandemic on this particular election, as well as a whole bunch of other consequences or side effects of it. For data geeks, it's going to be a fascinating time. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is from Bloomberg, that a third of people this month a third of people in America are concerned that they will not be able to pay their rent or mortgage. That 127 million Americans have experienced a loss of income since mid-March. And I guarantee you, when employers start hiring and hiring back, they're going to be paying less than they were before. Because there's going to be a lot of people looking for jobs and employers are going to be sitting in the catbird seat. In fact, that's, I'm, I'm certain that's already going on, and it probably accounts for this statistic. 127 million Americans saw their pay go down. More than a third of New Yorkers experience housing insecurity. In other words, they're on the edge of homelessness. 40% of people living in Houston. More than half of all households have experienced a loss of income since March. We're looking at 23.8 million people who don't have enough to eat. To eat. And uh, the CDC said in May and June, fully 10% of adults seriously considered suicide. These are shocking statistics that all came out of the fact that Donald Trump chose not to use science to respond to uh, a pandemic, but instead chose to make it political, to use it to create chaos. He's loving the fact that large swaths of America who typically vote Democratic, older people who think about Medicare and Social Security, are afraid 
to go vote and want to vote by mail, and he can blow that up by messing with the Postal Service. He is loving this. And then we get this. The Oregon Bankers Association. This is from Bill Rogaway in the Oregonian, our local newspaper here. Now, this is just one state. But I would bet anything that the same thing is being done by bankers associations or similar trade groups in every state. But here it is. This is Oregon. We have a state law. Our state legislature passed a law saying that you may not evict people until the last, the last day of September or the first day of October. And I believe that the governor might have extended that for another month. She has the ability to do that. So here's the story, straight up. And this, I think, gives you some insight into how the business community is dealing with this crisis. Uh, at least those members of the business community who are the, the takers, as it were. They take your rent. They take your mortgage. They sit in their, in their fancy homes and in their mansions and in their gated communities and have people deliver things to them, no contact. And, you know, they're not all that worried about what's going on, right? They don't have to interact. In fact, you know, they can get 15-minute rapid tests. They can hop on their private jets and go to places where there's no COVID or very little. So here's the story. The Oregon Bankers Association sued to overturn part of a new state law that protects homeowners from foreclosure and other penalties if they can't pay their mortgages during the pandemic. An attorney for the bankers said he wasn't sure if lenders might seek to take homes through civil litigation rather than foreclosure. So here's the thing. The state said you can't foreclose on these homes. So, you know, an enterprising reporter who understands real estate law says to the lawyer for the Oregon Bankers Association, well, you know, there's foreclosure is not the only way to take a person's home away from them. You can sue them for the home. And if they fail in court, if they can't meet your lawsuit, they lose their home, too. And so they asked the attorney for the bankers, are you going to do that? And the banker and the attorney for the bankers said, I'm not saying the law applies, this from this article by Mick, uh, Mike Rogaway in the Oregonian, the law applies through September but authorizes the governor to extend its uh, provisions until a later date. The banker's lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court in Eugene. This is a federal lawsuit. They're claiming that Oregon has preempted the U.S. Constitution. It argues that Oregon's new law constitutionally preempts federal law and unfairly, to who? Oh, that's right, to the rich guys who own the mortgages. Unfairly seeks to establish retroactive protections beginning March 8th. The suit also seeks to reverse provisions of the new Oregon law that prevent banks from enacting fees, higher interest rates, or other charges for non-payment during the pandemic. So right now here in Oregon, if you're late making your mortgage payment, not only can they not kick you out of your house, they can't hit you with a late fee. They can't hit you with penalties. They can't jack your interest rate from 3% up to 16%. They can't do that by law. And the Oregon bankers are saying, what? We want to be able to hit people with fees. We want to be able to jack up people's interest rates. You know, screwing our customers is our business model. We're banks. And the question now is whether some federal judge, a third of them in the country right now, appointed by Donald Trump, is going to say, yeah, that's really not fair to those banksters and the billionaires and the, and the, you know, the wealthy people who own the buildings. And it's just not fair to them. 
And that's, that's going on. Oh, one last thing I wanted to share with you. I've been sitting on this story for a couple days. This is uh, from the New York Times by Heider Werach, a cardiologist. Dr. Werach, MD, says SARS-CoV-2 is the official name of COVID, of the virus that causes COVID-19, and points out the SARS, SARS stands for Severe, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. He notes, though, Hader, uh, Warich, the Dr. Warich notes that the virus's most potent damage is actually inflicted on the heart. And then he talks about uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, who was the number one pitcher for the Boston Red Sox this season, 27 years old, tested positive for COVID. He said, I felt 100 years old. I've never been that sick in my life, and I don't want to get that sick again. His symptoms went away. He was cured, but... He said he felt so tired after throwing about 20 pitches during practice that his team told him to stop and rest. Turns out when they did a check of his heart, you know, using things like echocardiograms and stuff like that, what they found out was that he had COVID-19 associated myocarditis, inflammation of the heart or of the, the membrane that surrounds the heart, the pericardium. Anyhow, he's not going to be playing baseball this season. Multiple football, this is from this New York Times article, multiple football players have possibly developed myocarditis from COVID-19. An intriguing new study for Germany, researchers studied 100 individuals with a median age of 49. Half of them were older than 49, half of them younger, who had just recovered from COVID-19. Most were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms. They did MRI scans of their hearts and, quoting from the article, Nearly 80% had persistent abnormalities and 60% had evidence of myocarditis that was not explained by the severity of the initial illness. In other words, you can get myocarditis, this ongoing inflammation of the heart muscle that can lead to heart disease and heart attacks, even if you're symptom-free. He said, this makes it clear in young patients who had seemingly overcome SARS-CoV-2, it's fairly common for the heart to be affected. We may only be seeing the beginning of the damage. The headline kind of sums the whole story up. It's titled, this is again in the New York Times, uh, COVID-19 is creating a wave of heart disease. Emerging data show that some of the coronavirus's most potent damage is inflicted not on the lungs, but on the heart. Remarkable stuff. Paul in Sparta, Wisconsin. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, Tom, thanks for taking my call. You were talking about the CDC doing their guidelines on testing. I think they started earlier because my son is in the Air Force, and the little group of guys that works in his office, one of them came down with COVID. He had to test, came back Monday. It was positive. They told the guys in the shop, if you show signs of any COVID symptoms, let us know. We're not going to test you. Really? Now, this is an eight- was or this, And this was, the, this was the Air Force? This is the Air Force did this. Uh, My son called me Monday night to tell me this. Yeah, see, the Air Force so doesn't is, have to go along with CDC rules. They, they you know, they go out of, the, the DOD runs the Air Force, so uh, it's entirely possible that, that. The, the DOD spread this rule months ago. I, I worked for the government for 40 years. I understand how the SAM works, but this, this is what Trump and his people think of veterans. This is how they treat our military. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Thanks, It's Tom. distressing. It's 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for the, for the heads up on that. Uh, uh, amazing. It's like they have no soul. You know, it, it, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, some people are going to die. So what? 170,000 dead Americans. Eh, it's not so bad. 57% of Republicans say that's an acceptable number. So, I mean, only 10% of Democrats do, but 57% of Republicans say that's acceptable. So, hey, if the base is good with people dying, we're good. Where have we seen or heard that before? Oh, yeah, in fascist countries. That's right. And in strongman authoritarian countries right now. I mean, the way that Trump is running the coronavirus here is the way that Bolsonaro is in Brazil, the way that Putin is in Russia, the way that what's his name in the Philippines is step by step by step. Pick your right wing strongman leader. And this seems to be their strategy for dealing with the coronavirus. Let's go for herd immunity. We'll kill off the weak and the, only the strong will be left standing. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is on a major bragging streak here. Mitch McConnell has now said no piece of legislation is going to pass the United States Senate until we can give immunity to big corporations in the United States from lawsuits because they have taken actions which cause people to become infected with COVID or they have taken actions which ignore people in their workforce who are sick with COVID. No action can be taken legally against them. He wants that written into law. And now the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is out here saying, yeah, that was us. We did this. The Washington Post is reporting that the chamber's, quote, Institute for Legal Reform wrote draft legislation designed to shield companies from liabilities related to the pandemic, and they distributed it to state and federal lawmakers. That top executive is a guy named Matthew Webb. He's the senior vice president for legal reform policy at the chamber. He was broadcasting. This was a live teleconference. He said, uh, we have worked very closely with Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn to draft this legislation. John Cornyn, though, the Republican senator from Texas, he's a little upset that the chamber is taking credit for his, his legislation. He's saying, no, I'm the one who helped out the big corporations. Not you guys, me. It's, uh, this is from uh, Daily Kos from a, a diary by Joan McCarter titled uh, Chamber of Commerce crows about its role in the logjam in COVID-19 relief negotiations. Cornyn's team isn't very pleased with the chamber taking credit for what they say is their work. Drew Brandewey, a spokesman for Cornyn, said his office distributed a first draft of its own on May 6th and started working on the coronavirus liability issues two months before the chamber claims to have written our bill. But this is the bottom line, you know, and, and by the way, the, the chamber has coughed up more money for Mitch McConnell's reelection campaign, apparently, than ever before. The, the largest contribution they've made this year to McConnell's campaign, according to this article by Joan McCarter over at DailyCoast.com. What have we come to when American politicians are bragging that they are committing Mitch McConnell will not pass any legislation through the Senate unless it includes this. John Cornyn saying, I'm the author of this, bragging that they're going to make sure that if you, as a worker, die because of decisions made by your employer, that you have no legal recourse. That when you die, your family's just stuck. Sorry, you're not going to get a $100,000 settlement or a million-dollar settlement. Your kids are not going to have any money to pass down to, to, to your grandchildren. Your family is going to probably lose their home and be thrown out on the street. But hey, 
The CEOs, they're protected. The board of directors, there's no legal liability. The manager in that factory or that company who made the decision to force you to work or to basically say, if you don't work, you're going to lose your job, which is, you know, economic force. They have no liability. Everything's good with them. We're not going to, we're going to hold them harmless. I mean, just this whole, you know, the rich guys at the top get everything. It's just so bizarre. Here's Jerry Falwell Jr. now. There's another example of this. Apparently for seven years, his pool boy was having sex with his wife and he was sitting in the corner watching and having a good old time with that. And he got busted for this and he, he retired. He is due his $1.25 million salary for two years, followed by a lump sum payment of $8 million. They have to pay him $10 million to get rid of him. After this? Really? The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, faced political pressure from the Trump administration to change their rules. This is very concerning. They used to be if you've been exposed to COVID-19, you can get tested. Well, now they're saying, no, you, you don't get tested. And why might that be? Well, it might be because Donald Trump keeps saying, you know, if we didn't test so many people, we wouldn't know about so many cases. And if we didn't have the statistics of so many cases, we're at, what, 5.7 million now? If we didn't know about all these cases in the United States, then, gee, uh, the administration would look a whole lot better. They'd look like, you know, they were doing something good. So let's stop the testing. This has been the song of America since 1981. This is what Reagan brought with him. The conservative mindset. Conservatism could be defined very easily as aristocracy. That's the word that defines conservatism. Having a small ruling class. This is what Reagan promoted. This is what every Republican since him has promoted. This is what neoliberalism promotes. And this is where we're at now. As a consequence of this small, by the way, white ruling class, we are being torn apart. Our working people haven't seen a raise in 40 years. George W. Bush, when he was running for re-election in 2004, had that woman up on stage with him. She said, he says, you have a job? She says, I'm working three jobs. He says, oh, isn't that all American? Didn't used to be all American, but it is now. Conservative aristocrats want to make it that way. It's just that simple. You know, I think Americans are waking up. I think they're realizing that they're on the tail end of a 40-year-long con job that started with Ronald Reagan and is hitting its absolute peak, its predictable endpoint with Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn and all these other Republicans who are saying that, you know, if you're a working person, your life doesn't matter. But if you're a, a billionaire or if you're a you know, white Republican senator, hey, that's important. We're going to take care of you. This is what we have come to. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.